What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric here alongside with Rod again for another episode. And it's not quite the season yet. We're getting ready for Big Ten previews that are coming out in just a couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. I first want to thank everybody who's really in the first week we've had a pretty amazing response to our website. We've had a lot of people jump on the forum. And uh, I want to thank all of you for signing up for the email list. I encourage you to go to the website at tffinots.com. And there you can make sure you get on the mailing list for special events and things we have coming up. And we actually do have something coming up in probably the next few weeks. We'll announce, make that announcement for a contest we're going to be having uh, throughout the season. Uh, so make sure you're on that. So again, at tffinots.com, there you can also find ways to support the show. Aside from just being part of our community, you can certainly become a financial supporter of the show too, which we greatly appreciate. Uh, we'd like, especially like to thank Stephen Houghton for one-time PayPal gift this last week and also uh, new patrons on Patreon at MSU Tiff Knots, uh, Adam Walzak, Doug Robinson, and James Benton, who are all pledged at the Mateen Cleaves level. So thank you so much for jo- jumping on board and joining us with our the Final Four is Not on the Schedule family. We definitely want to thank those folks. And um, and as far as the site goes, we I, I really want to encourage, uh, continue to encourage people to sign up for the forum. Um you know, th- we're kind of in a little bit of a lull period right now. You know, MSU's recruiting action, at least for the 23 class, is essentially done. Um, and we aren't yet into the full teeth of the preseason. We'll have about another month and a half until that hits. But um, I, I'd still encourage you to sign up, register, get involved. It's absolutely free. And I promise we will be having very robust discussion there and we and we are even now but especially as we get closer to the season and then actually in it um i i think that you'll find it will be a great supplement to what we do here on the podcast yeah and again just be part of that community is a really big thing for us i'd also like to really encourage you that if you have not yet obviously subscribe to the show but but feel free to share with your friends and also take the time, maybe stop right now uh, when you're, while you're listening and just leave a review, a written review in the podcast player of your choice. That makes a big difference in helping with the search engine for people to find the show and for other Spartans to find out about, you should say, basketball and a podcast that I think is really enhances your viewing enjoyment for, throughout the season. But with all that said, let's hop into your subject today. Again, it's another summer episode. So we're going to talk about the big news that happened was about two months ago now with USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten. This is something we touched on briefly with our interview with Jack Ebling, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that show if you want to uh, get Jack's thoughts on that. But we're going to go into a little deeper dive on what this means for the basketball season, because obviously 
as we all know, or if you don't know, you should learn, you should know that football is what drives all these decisions with the athletic departments right now. Yeah. Football revenue, even a look at a school like, say, Kentucky, and there's been a little spat, and this would have been public with between Calipari and Mark Stoops, the basketball and football coaches. Yeah. And, I mean, that is, and Calipari has to know that the the football department football brings in I don't know it's like four or five times the amount of revenue that the basketball does obviously Kentucky is a basketball school obviously care about basketball more than they do football they obviously love football but but football rights and the television rights are what drive all the revenue and so whatever decisions are made for football all the other sports sort of just have to tag along right that's and so the decisions to add USC and UCLA were quite obvious you're adding a gigantic market in the West Coast and the Los Angeles area adding it to New York, Chicago, and all the rest of the Big Ten encompasses, which is pretty much everything but Texas and Florida right now is the Big Ten network. And so you go from coast to coast. And so the fun, from a financial standpoint, it was a no-brainer. And that means that's what's going to happen. And so whether you like it or not, uh, as far as you know how it changes the competitiveness and changes the shape of the league, that is what's driving decisions within athletic departments. And so... Obviously, UCLA is not much of a football power. We were talking off the air that UCLA, when we were kids, they were actually pretty good. They were going to the Rose Bowls, and they were and the, watching the USC-UCLA US, game was kind of a big deal. It wasn't quite as big as Alabama-Auburn is now, but I felt like it was kind of like that. Now, I don't even you know, know when it happens. It's just, I mean, for one thing, it's like late at night, and it's West Coast, but <laughs> but we're going to talk about basketball, and um, I guess I'll just go, I'm going to go through just a, a brief little stats on the, the two teams and sort of their basketball history. And then we'll kind of jump into the discussion. So obviously the 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 big name is of course UCLA. They are uh, they've had eleven national championships. The last one being in nineteen ninety five. They had championships really from sixty four to seventy five and missed only two of them in sixty six and seventy four when they were totally dominant under uh, John Wooden. They've been the runner up twice in nineteen eighty and two thousand six. They've been in nineteen final fours. The last one being in twenty twenty one, and they've had thirty seven conference champions championships uh, since 1921 and they have a winning record against every Pac-12 team the other team is USC the Trojans they have no national championships they have no runner uh, runner-up finals uh, they have two final fours back in 1940 and 1954 they've been to eight elite eights they've won the conference championship seven times since 1928 the last one being in 1985 and they have a winning record against only five Pac-12 teams so they are clearly when it comes to basketball, not at all a dominant team. And if you're looking from a basketball standpoint, the addition of UCLA obviously brings in a, the blue, the sort of classic blue blood from the West Coast. And USC is sort of just an afterthought. And that is obviously a decision for football. And that's why USC is part of the part of the makeup. So, Rod, what's your what was your initial thought when this all happened? And I guess your thoughts. Well, uh, first, before we get into UCLA, UCLA USC, um, I, I want to turn back to that bit about Kentucky because I found that to be really interesting. Um, it, it's John Calipari, of course, is well known as a guy that sometimes has trouble with the chip on his shoulder, which is really weird that he should still have that this deep into his. I understood it when he was at UMass or even Memphis because you're in jobs like that it's easy to feel like you're not getting the respect you think you're due, but my God, he's been at Kentucky for what is it now? 13 years, something like that. You know, that that's as blue blood as it gets. What possible justification do you have? But apparently the background here is 
he's having trouble or he perceives that he's having trouble getting a new practice facility to replace the one they built. I think it was 13 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that. It's relatively new. And he, I guess it seems he believes that the football program is soaking up some of the money there. Um, Kentucky's an interesting test case because although the dynamics are not, um, are not exactly the same. I think you could make an argument that they are about as good a match for Michigan state as any program out there in terms of the relative strengths of the two programs. I think the difference is you said Kentucky's a basketball school in terms of its achievements. There's no question that that's true. Uh, it's tradition, but Kentucky football is not a lightweight Kentucky football draws. And if you look at their attendance numbers, they're very similar to Michigan States. They haven't, I don't think they've succeeded as much historically in football as Michigan state, but the two programs, it's, it's kind of similar to me as opposed to other basketball first schools like Kansas or Indiana or lately UCLA. Um, Kentucky and Michigan state share a lot in common, but the difference couldn't be more stark in or starker than when you look at the relationships between the coaches of the two major sports at Michigan state, Tom Izzo is the biggest football fan in the world and has always been massively supportive of the football programs. And in turn, especially the last I would say the last two head coaches and Nick Saban too. John L. Smith, I, I was, I don't have a lot of memory of that. I didn't get the sense they were particularly tight, but they certainly weren't adversarial. But Mark D'Antonio and Tom Izzo could not have been closer. And his relationship with Mel Tucker seems fantastic. I mean, Christ, Izzo's name is going on a football building, yeah. right? So there you go. Whereas at Kentucky, we've got these guys treating each other as adversaries, it's weird. Um, and the Kentucky football program is kind of, I, I get it. They're a little bit obnoxious. Um, Michigan state fans have probably noted some of that in some recent recruiting battles. Um, they've had some guys on their coaching staff who really like to run their mouths and it's strange to me, but um, in any event, just, I find that comparison really interesting and, I think it's hard ultimately to have a, a truly, truly successful athletic program that is operating at maximum capacity. If the guys running your two revenue sports are not supportive of each other, there's just, it's just very difficult. So uh, not that I expect Kentucky's programs to crater, but I'd much rather be in Michigan state's position. Let's put it Absolutely. that way. So all, all that said, Turning to the, the subject at hand, USC and UCLA, I think that, as you correctly pointed out, football is driving this, and specifically the decision of the schools to join the Big Ten and the decision on the Big Ten's part to admit them, specifically USC football. USC football is historically, I would say pretty clearly, you could say they're one of the five greatest programs in the history of the sport. If you added it all up across time, going back to the fifties and sixties, um, USC would be in that mix, probably, um, 
I'd have to think about it, but I guess Alabama, Notre Dame, um, not Michigan, Ohio state. <laughs> I'd have to think about who would factor in, but it wouldn't be Michigan. Um, in any event, great football program, great history. UCLA used to be a near peer of USC, but I think over the last 20 years, it's been tough. So the argument is that UCLA is kind of alone for the ride in this because they weren't just going to admit USC and USC wanted to bring their rivals. They didn't want to lose the UCLA rivalry. Um, so that's why UCLA is along for the ride. It's not really that, Oh, they're driving, they're driving the train on this with equal weight to what USC is bringing to the table. That's not the case. Um, but that's football from a basketball perspective, which again, isn't making any decisions, but we're evaluating what it means for the sport. It's exactly the opposite. UCLA is depending upon how you measure these things, either the greatest program in college basketball history or right there at the top. I think it, again, it depends if the criteria is strictly national championships. Well, they're clearly the best. They've got 11 of them. Nobody else has touched that. And, you know, you can say, well, it's John Wooden, but John Wooden didn't win them all. Most of them he did. But you mentioned that 95 title that Jim Herrick won. And, and let's be honest, UCLA has had periods of great success long after John Wooden left. Ben Howland took them to three straight Final Fours um, in, uh, in the aughts. Uh, with some great teams, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love, I mean, on and on and on. Those were talent-dominated uh, teams, just great teams. Uh, Michigan State fans know full well two years ago, the COVID year, UCLA went all the way from a play-in game to a Final Four berth. And then last season didn't repeat that, but were a top-10 fixture much of the year and, and were certainly a team that was seen as having a chance contending for the title they didn't quite get there but they still had a strong season and there are lots of other years in the 70s 80s and 90s where where ucla was relevant as as well so they are by any measure one of the true blue bloods of the sport there, there's no question about that usc is i think and this used to be a line you heard a lot uh, about usc is that they were a sleeping giant and the reason being they had a huge brand due to their football success, and they were located in Southern California where a ton of talent is produced. So the thinking went, look, all these guys have got to do is just win their fair share of recruitments. They don't even have to beat UCLA out for everybody. Just get, just get a fair, their fair share of Southern California kids, and you should be an elite or near elite team most years. Well, that's easier said than done. And historically USC has been an underachiever. I think you mentioned they've only got winning records against five schools in the PAC 12 yeah. historically. So that means six, they got a losing record. against. <laughs> yeah. um, I think they've been better of late. You know, Andy Enfeld took that job after he left uh, Florida Gulf coast. If people remember, he had those highly entertaining dunk city teams several years ago. He parlayed that into the USC job. And while they haven't had a major breakthrough season, they haven't had a final four run. They haven't won a PAC 12 title. They've probably had, and I'm talking about the last say four or five seasons, 
they've probably been about as good over that sustained a period of time as at any point that I can remember, because basically other than that, USC basketball was about very brief spikes. They had, and I'm dating myself with this. They had a guy in the early nineties named Harold minor, who was one of the early baby Jordans. In fact, that was his nickname. It didn't quite work out that way Mm -hmm. for him, but he was a dynamite player in college. Um, they had occasionally, they would have a team in the seventies or the eighties that, uh, I think Henry Bibby was head coach there for a period in the aughts. And he, might, I think he had a team or two that were good, but they, they weren't able to sustain anything. Enfeld has done a pretty good job in terms of getting them to a point where the expectation is more often or has been more often than not, they're going to be an NCAA tournament team. Um, I do think, and and this is where I differ. I, if I recall correctly, and I haven't gone back to listen to the episode, but I think Jack Ebling's perspective was that he didn't think this move was going to mean very much from a basketball perspective for those programs. Is that how you remember it? Yeah, he, he and I think you know again his point was too that it was is driven driven by football, and so that was where most of the impact would be. But I think we both. We didn't really explore that, but I, that was probably his, his general impression that it wasn't going to. That's what I thought I remembered his tone being. And I, and I apologize if I don't have that accurately characterized, but um, I don't think that's the case. I think UCLA will continue most likely to be what they've always been, which is a very good basketball team. That is sometimes a national title contender, just like the best programs in the big 10 currently, like a Michigan state, and Ohio State, I guess I got to throw a bone to the guys down the road and say that's been true over the last decade. Yeah. Um, you know, historically, you could open that up to pro- a program like Indiana, um, Wisconsin occasionally. But I, I think UCLA, I expect to be in the upper tier of Big Ten programs immediately. I, I don't see any reason why not. But I think USC is actually perhaps – set up to really benefit from this. And the reason I say that is UCLA, because of the nature of that program, has always had the ability to recruit nationally. Uh, They haven't done a lot of it recently. More of their kids have been West Coast kids, I think, um, by and large. But historically, they were able, I mean, the greatest player in the history of the program, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was a New Yorker, you know, and they had guys from all over the place who have played for that program over the years, you know. So UCLA always has had that kind of pull. And because they're UCLA, they, of course, have pull with West Coast kids, too, because they're the marquee program on the West Coast. USC has not had that kind of cachet in basketball, but I think if they're moving to a league where so many more of their games are going to be seen by a much larger percentage of the country, and they're going to be playing in these places, they're going to be playing in Michigan and Illinois, and Maryland, and Ohio, and Indiana, and all these states, I, I tend to think it's going to help them. Uh, I don't know how much, but I can't see where it's anything but a net positive for USC. The biggest thing, again, is just your program is going to be seen more. People 
people who live in our part of the country can't really begin to fully understand the difference that that makes. Or maybe you can, if you think about how often you watch Pac-12 sports. Yeah. Unless you're a true, true diehard who's able to stay up late, you probably don't see a lot of it. And and I could tell you from having, I lived in California. That's where I went to law school. I lived there for three years. And it's understood by people who are diehard fans that there aren't as many of them there as there are here. College sports in general are not the same level of draw, but it's resented. You know, there's the famous East Coast bias line, but it's truly, I think, more than anything else, just a function of the fact that when your games are on so much later, you're just not going to be seen by as many people. Well, now USC is going to have a minimum of 10 games being played in the central or Eastern time zones, you know, the 10, those 10 road games, um, that's going to make a difference. It just will. You're going to be seen by more eyeballs and you're going to be seen more regularly by kids in other parts of the country. Yes. You could say, well, every game is on national television now in all these leagues. That's true, but it's, it is not the same thing playing at seven o'clock Eastern versus uh, a 10 PM or 11 PM tip time or, or midnight, yeah, which happens and with PAC 12 games. And so I do think that the difference it could make for USC in terms of recruiting scope could be significant. I, again, I, I I'm willing to debate the idea of how much significance to assign from it, but I don't think it can possibly be zero. I think, I think it's a good point you make too, because if you look at, I think right away to, that I agree that UCLA is going to be a, a team that's going to be in contention for the Big Ten. You're, it's certainly, initially, the first couple of years, we're not really going to know where they where they land until they start playing Big Ten uh, games. But for USC, there are one of two ways you could always go, right? Like, I see these other additions in football to the Big Ten, and you saw Penn State came in. That was the first one, right? And they came in, and I think Penn State had every expectation they're going to come in and dominate the Big Ten or, like, really challenge, yeah. right? And it never happened. And they really have never. Well, they, they had they had that great team early. But like one, and one I can't or two remember, years, right? Yeah, it was like the first or second year they were in the conference. They had a, that great offense yes. with Terry Collins and, and those guys. But you're right. After that, I think they thought it was going to be simple. And they found because people need to remember. The Ohio State of that period was, yeah, they weren't as good. was not the Ohio State we have now. They were much less consistent because they just didn't maximize the talent. That yeah, it was, had. and that Michigan was the was a the team to beat in the Big Ten at that time in the late nineties. Yeah, more often, yeah, than not. for sure. And the same thing when Nebraska came in, I the expectation was Nebraska was a down program, yeah. but Nebraska was going to turn around and they were going to be a and they have not ever turned into anything, which is surprising. It's really surprised me. So I look at you know USC. And I think of them in from a basketball standpoint is now obviously they've got a good football program, but they could maybe be a lot like Rutgers, right? You have a team that has been abysmal forever, uh, but they're a team that you know they they're with basketball. It doesn't take much, but a few players to suddenly become to turn turn your program around and to change its culture. And I think you're seeing that at Rutgers, right? We're seeing a program that now you don't look as look at as just a patsy that you're going to just beat up on every twice a year, and maybe USC can pull themselves into that, that same position where they're now, you know, reliably like a pest. And now, you know, you get a couple of recruits and suddenly things can turn around and you can have a couple of really good years. So I mean, that's, I think what they'd hope for, right? 
Yeah, I think that their ceiling is probably high. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you could make an argument about Rutgers ceiling if and when they get to the point that they're consistently able to keep at least their share of the best talent, New Jersey at home, which they, and I'm a big Steve Peichel fan. I was a Steve Peichel fan early the first year I, I talked about it on this podcast, how I really thought he had the right kind of formula to succeed there. And he's done that. Uh, but what he hasn't yet done is consistently like every year be landing at least one of the truly blue chip kids that state produces because New Jersey is an unbelievable state for basketball talent. Uh, USC can get great talent and have there and, and recruiting to Los Angeles is a different thing than recruiting in New Jersey, yeah. you know? Um, so I would argue that USC ceiling is probably higher. Um, again, unless Rutgers can really make a breakthrough in terms of what they're able to do with homegrown talent, which I, I haven't yet seen evidence that they've been able to do. Um, I, I really do like USC's future. I, I think, you know, is Enfeld the guy? Well, he's been pretty good there. Um, are they able to broaden their scope in recruiting? That'll be interesting to see. And that'll take a few years to truly accurately measure. But I, I really if I were a USC basketball fan, I'd be pretty bullish on this because I just don't see any way that it serves to do anything but help and elevate your program. The only debate is how much, whereas UCLA it's the only difference for UCLA is this. There's no question that the big 10 year in year out over the long run is a deeper stronger conference in the Pac-12. So whereas most of the time UCLA could look at the Pac-12 and say, all right, Arizona over the last 40 years has been more often than not a peer program, at least in terms of its competitiveness. You've occasionally had Oregon be a contender, and that's kind of about it. Yeah. That's not how it is in the Big Ten. <laughs> You know, they're going to run, they're going to find out that, you know, there really aren't as many Washington states and Oregon states and Arizona states and Stanford's and Cal's not, not those programs haven't all had their moments over the years, but on a consistent basis, you know, look, the, <laughs> the big 10 is a gauntlet. I mean, and, and this, the adding these two makes it even tougher still. You look at the quality of programs. I mean, historically, it was always there with Michigan State, Michigan, and Ohio State, and Indiana, and Purdue, and Illinois. And, and really, over the last 30 years, you could add Wisconsin to that pretty comfortably. And I think we, I know, speaking for myself, I, I'm waiting for the day that whomever the coach is at Minnesota finally, and maybe it'll be <laughs> Ben Johnson, finally figures out how to keep the lion's share of homegrown talent home, and they could be back where they once were. Iowa has been at least solid <laughs> under, under Fran. Really, what weak programs do you have? Well, Northwestern. That's kind of Nebraska, it. yeah, pretty much it, yeah. Yeah, and Nebraska. Nebraska has been a bad ad from a basketball standpoint. But then you add Penn State. But then you add, you add Rutgers, who we've talked about, has at least now gotten to the point that they're consistently competitive. And Maryland, which, man, you want to talk about a sleeping giant, that program, and, and I don't know whether um, uh, 
uh, why am I drawing Willard? I don't know if Kevin Willard is the guy we'll find out, but if anybody gets it right in that job, just the sheer talent in the DMV as a backyard for recruiting is so immense. Maryland could be easily with the right situation, the right coach, the right kind of momentum could be a true top 10 program year in year out. I mean, they have that potential and not every job has that potential. I believe Maryland does. Um, so UCLA is going to find out the path to winning a conference <laughs> yeah, it's a lot is going to be a lot harder in the big 10. I believe that. Now here's another thing that said, there's two other things that immediately come to mind. I want to get your thoughts on. So the first is, Apart from, you know, people being able to see your games and all the obvious tangible benefits of it, the big negative for these two programs, I think pretty clearly is travel. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially for basketball. You know, the big, yeah. if you're, if you're a program in the rest of the big 10, you say, okay, we have to do our West coast swing once a year. And I think that's probably how they'll do it. You, you will play back-to-back -back road games against USC and UCLA. It wouldn't make any sense to do it otherwise, right? Um, so that's, you know, that's not ideal. But USC and UCLA are making East Central or East Coast swings, you know, five times a season. Yeah. Right? Because they're playing 10 road games. So, or four times at least. I guess they'll get, probably have a guaranteed road game against USC every year or UCLA, depending upon which we're talking about. But I think that's an open question, and how much that negatively impacts them, you have to think it it will, right? Uh, well, you'd absolutely think so, yeah. And I don't know how many direct flights are from Los Angeles to Happy Valley, but I'm guessing not a whole lot. Or, to <laughs> <laughs> or Lincoln. Yeah, right. or, yeah. I guess you can fly I to mean, Omaha, right? right or yeah. Iowa, Iowa City. I mean, they're really, that's a really good point. Um, and that is a difference. That's a, you know, it's interesting that you raise that because if you think about the PAC 12, you had those two schools in Los Angeles, Stanford and Cal are each, let me generously say a 40 minute drive from SFO. Yeah. Um, and you might even go into Oakland if you were going to, if you're playing at Berkeley, um, Washington is in Seattle major city, you know, uh, or the Oregon schools. Okay. Arizona state Phoenix. So there's a handful of schools that are not in major cities, but there are a lot more schools in major cities where you are making direct flights. If you're talking about the big 10, who's in a guaranteed, no matter where you're coming from, we'll say Los Angeles, uh, direct flight while Northwestern is, you could argue that that Michigan is because, you know, Metro is within a half sure. hour of Minneapolis. So you could make that argument. Minnesota with Minneapolis. Um, Maybe Columbus. I'm I don't missing know. anybody. Maybe I guess Mar I guess Maryland. Yeah. Eh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe Columbus. Is Piscataway not, not one? Bl not <laughs> Bloomington. Eh, kind yeah. of. But there's a lot more. I mean, you mentioned Happy Valley. Yeah, that's a rough one. East Lansing. Well, you fly in the Metro direct, but then you're, you're staring at an hour and change drive from there. It's not right next door. Champaign-Urbana, not close to anything. I mean, I guess you fly, you fly into St. Louis, but um, it, Iowa City, I mean, these are not Lincoln. These are not necessarily super convenient places to get to, and it's winter. Right, and, and, yeah. so, and to do it 
frequently. Like it's one thing to play one game yeah. in Arbor and say, well, you know, we played a one non-conference because I know yep. UCLA came up. That's, once. that's the big point. Yeah. It's over and over again that you're doing this. So I have to think, and I don't, I, frankly, I don't know what can be done to really alleviate that issue. I think it's just something they're going to have to deal with. And you would think that that shows up somehow over the long haul of a 20 game big 10 season. I think so. You would think. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, what, what likely will happen. And the, I think the only solution really, if you're USC or UCLA for basketball and probably a lot of the other sports is just charting, chartering planes and flying directly into whatever these, these yeah. airports are like, you know, uh, Lansing yep. or Iowa city. Right. But there's a huge expense with that, right? So that's the that's the other, and that was one of the things. Actually, when we're recording this, they had the Board of Regents meeting for California, where they talked about you know entering the the Big Ten for uh, UCLA, and what it what its impact will have on uh, higher education. Well, at California schools, which would be Cal Berkeley, basically the only other school that they're talking about. Uh, but the uh, the impact of that is going to be, I think, significant from a financial standpoint, and. You know, how much extra revenue do you get? That's something for UCLA to work out, I suppose. Obviously, for football, there's it overall, it's going to be better for them. But it's logistically, and it's going to be expensive. Like, you, how are you going to get your volleyball teams over to Champaign, you know, for your volleyball? I mean, there's a lot of stuff, right? That's where the rubber hits the road. I mean, it's fairly easy to look at football and basketball and say, well, guys, I mean, we're making – we're making a hundred million, which might actually be the final number when all is said and done. It could be close to a hundred million per school when when these deals are finally concluded. Um, it's easy to justify it for those sports because those sports are revenue producers anyway. But yeah, what about volleyball and um, men's tennis? Swimming. And, I mean, okay. on and on and on. It's now. Look, there are smart people involved in these programs. They've clearly done the math and figured, hey, even considering all of that, it still makes – and the rest of the Big Ten, too, knowing that they're tacking on at least one other long trip a year. But it's a lot easier for the rest of the league than it is for USC and UCLA. Um, but it has to – I guess the financial aspect is one thing. I'm looking at it uh, for purposes of our discussion more – from a competitive point of view at what point in February when you're on the third or fourth trip from Los Angeles to um, play Maryland and Rutgers over four days or play Michigan and Michigan state. At what point is that taking a toll on your team? I don't know. You may be right. That ultimately the solution is at least for football and basketball, well, look, we're just going to have to charter flights and bite the bullet and fly direct into these towns because it's the only shot we've got. We can't we can't be flying into a major airport and then bussing for an hour and a half each way. That's just not going to fly. Well, I think, too, if you're someone who's traveled, and I know you've traveled, done extensive traveling, it's always worse going west to east. And so I would think, you know, for Big Ten sure. teams going out to L.A., yeah, there's, you know, the time difference of two or three hours depending where you're coming from. But it's it's not as drastic as it is going going from traveling, you know, to the East Coast. So I think it'd be really hard on their athletes just, you know, with yeah. your sort of crazy schedule. And I and you could say you could say for extended road trips where you'd come out for four or five days, but you know, right now there's still students. <laughs> they still have classwork and stuff, and so well, that becomes more complicated. Theoretically. Too, right? yeah. 
Theoretically, right. yeah. There's, they always yeah. say students first, I, right? Student athlete. Uh, yeah. I do wonder, It's I, it, it, I'm sure this won't happen because it wouldn't serve the interest of television, but um, the, the older among us will probably remember that in the ancient days of the 1970s and even somewhat into the 80s, really, really probably before ESPN's entree into the scene, the Big Ten used to have a consistent Thursday-Saturday schedule. And so you would play two home games or two road games, typically. And it was only one day between them. That was the way it worked. And so, you know, part of me thinks, well, maybe this is solved by something that's more akin to that. But then I think about the television impact. And the whole deal here is, hey, we want product as many days as we can get it. So, you know, you like Friday night football? I hope you do. Cause you're going to see some of it <laughs> yeah. as a result of this, probably as a result of whatever streaming deal, the big 10 signs, which has not been announced yet um, between Amazon and Apple. But as I understand it, that's probably in the cards, um, you know, and basketball, I think we've already seen it out of necessity in order to get 20 games in. You've kind of got, I mean, it was sacrilege, this idea of having Friday, Friday night basketball games in the big 10, but we've seen some of that yeah. in the last couple of years and we will continue to. So I don't know, but I, they're going to, it'll be interesting to see what those schools do, but I, I suspect you're right. The only way they can have a shot to be competitive is to figure out whatever they can possibly do to shortcut the, um, the toll that travel will take. But there's also no question that there's going to be a disproportionate burden on those two schools as opposed to the rest of the league. I just don't think there's any way around that. Yeah. Right. That's just, and that's just the cost of, of joining the league, right. For their, you know, that's for the money. So that's one thing. The other thing I wanted to, to see what you thought about was we've talked about, what the benefits may be for UCLA and USC, but I, I would now look at the flip side. Are there benefits to the rest of the big 10? And I would, I would argue that potentially there are in this sense, again, you are going to have the Southern California market, which produces a ton of basketball talent. There's never any doubt about that year in year out. Um, Potentially, you make it more attractive for a player from that region of the country to consider traditional Big Ten schools because now they will have more familiarity with them. Now, I don't think it's as dramatic as these effects used to be. I, I can remember um, there was a period of time in the 80s where there was a, a very hot sense of what television could mean for recruiting because the big East had become such a presence on ESPN and were all constantly that those schools started to successfully recruit the West coast. So that mattered then I think, you know, we are in an era where you could basically, I mean, you could see Mac schools consistently if you want, you know, horizon league schools, you can find those games, but, I do think there's a difference because again, UCLA and USC are going to draw eyeballs in Southern California. They just are. So will that mean that it's easier 
for an Ohio state, a Michigan state, an Indiana to get in and compete on Southern California kids. I, I think it's a possibility. It remains to be seen. I certainly don't think that means Southern California is going to turn into, you know, the equivalent of Chicagoland or Detroit for Big Ten schools. But I do think it it has to open up more opportunities than currently exist because we we very rarely see California kids end up in the Big Ten. Every once in a while you do, but it's not a lot. Yeah, it'll be it'll be key to have all the reporters stand in front of green screens in February and with a green greenery behind them, you know, when they're outside of the Breslin Center to fool these kids into thinking that it's actually not so bad in the winter. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, that might be the the limit. Right. I, on it is that they're going to see more scenes of blizzards and uh, a half empty Carver Hawkeye um, on a on a Tuesday night in February. I had a kid who lived down the hall from me at in college and he was from San Diego and he was, he would sit just transfixed at the window during a thunderstorm. So, you know, maybe that weather could kind of encourage them to at least come out and during, during a thunderstorm. During a thunderstorm. Well, yeah, but you know, a blizzard, yeah. that's even, that is even crazier, right? At least well, it does rain sometimes. I, I, was, in San Diego. I was going to say for, for those who have not spent a lot of time in California, it would amaze you that the, the evening local news will treat rain in the way that we treat blizzards, <laughs> it's big news when there's a rainstorm. Uh, so I guess I don't find that hard to believe that a thunderstorm might really transfix a kid from San Diego. I think I do think, though, when it comes to adding UCLA and USC, I think for the Big Ten, obviously, there's a football. We'll just leave football aside. But I think, you know, adding the football profile, making it bigger and adding some big, a big name uh, just helps athletics in general in the big 10. But I think when it comes to adding the basketball programs, the big 10 now is really going to stretch from coast to coast. It sort of becomes sort of accidentally America's conference in some ways, right? It's kind of like everything, but the South is the only is its own, you know, maybe you could say argue the middle of the country with Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, but you kind of encompass the whole country. And so you're good. I think you're just going to draw more eyeballs just in general to the country too. And they'll have more familiarity with the big 10, right. And their programs. It's really, and I, you know, I, I need to reach out to guys I haven't talked to in a long time who I went to law school with, who were UCLA alums. I, I was mentioning you off air. I don't think I actually know anybody who went to Southern Cal, but I do know people who went to UCLA and, um, I really do need to get some of their perspective on this. I, I've got to imagine that it's unbelievably strange. Now, you know, the, the PAC 12 has always had a connection to the big 10 by virtue of the Rose bowl. Right. And, and in fact, I can tell you that again, from having lived out there, known a lot of alums of those schools and just knowing something about the nature of those schools, they were the two conferences that I felt shared the most in common. I'm talking about culturally, not across the board, but in, in the sense that athletics were treated seriously, but all the schools tend to be good to outstanding academically. You don't have any dead weight, which frankly, you know, some of the other power fives do from an academic standpoint. I mean, you know, the PAC 12, Stanford, obviously elite of the elite, uh, Berkeley, UCLA, USC, Washington, 
all outstanding schools. Oregon's a good school. Really, very few of the Pac-12 schools are even kind of, you know, only good. And that shares a lot in common with the Big Ten. I think the other leagues and, and, you know, you could say the ACC has some of that. But the problem the ACC has is that it's it's still fundamentally a southern league for the most part. And culturally, there's a difference. I always felt like people from the Big Ten region, from the upper Midwest and from the West Coast, by and large, had more in common than the Big Ten did with some of these other conferences. Um, you know, but uh, but even having said that, I just have to believe it's really jarring for those people. And it'll, it'll be really curious to see how they react to it because, you know, some of these schools that have switched, I, I don't, I, I think with Nebraska, it's hard to, it's hard to sort out how much of what's going on there is just a result of the fact that their program is no longer very good. Their football program versus buyers or more sit losing their old rivalries. Um, I tend to think they, you know, play more games with juice now than they used to in the old big eight days, you know, yeah, they lost Oklahoma, but that's really it. Yeah. Um, you know, Maryland, I know there, there is a constituency in their fan base that misses the ACC, but much as with UCLA in this dynamic, we were talking about this off air, both the Maryland decision and maybe to a little lesser extent, the UCLA decision were no brainers because those athletic departments were not just looking to make more money than they were by joining the big 10. They needed to do that because financially they were in real trouble. So, you know, I wonder I mean, USC and UCLA obviously are each other's biggest rivals, but I wonder how much lawning there's going to be for, you know, the Saturday night visit to Seattle yeah. or if that disappears and they very quickly are acclimated into, you know, what the Big Ten will present. And and it's it's only going to be that story is only going to be told by the unfolding of time. Obviously we'll find out together, but um, it is, it is interesting. And from a basketball perspective, as we've been talking about, I think this is a pretty strong addition. I mean, it's, I, I also look forward to seeing a lot of highlights from the John Wooden era on the big 10 networks, <laughs> classic games as they, as they like to do, you know, the traditional big 10 stronghold in Westwood. <laughs> Holly Pavilion highlights, yeah. That's right. There's always a snake pit for Big Ten schools. <laughs> a visit to Polly. Yeah. The only the only other thing I think that it'd be interesting to sort of get your thoughts on is when it comes to scheduling, I mean you already have a very unbalanced schedule, right? you assuming you're gonna keep it at yeah. twenty Big Ten games. Uh what is it now? You have five is it five teams that you only play once and the and the other uh let's think about that. So you got thirteen yeah, it's six. It's six one plays and seven two yeah, plays. That's twenty yep. games. So now you'll have to, you know, change that up a little bit. So you're going to get an even more imbalance. Your outright Big Ten champion is, is it's going to be more arguable, I guess, who's the better team, especially if it's a you know difference of one loss, which oftentimes it is, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I wonder if you're going to look at the tournament more as the as really you know who the champion is, of the league versus the regular season, which we've always sort of traditionally looked at 
I think honestly, it's already been there. And I think it's been there truthfully, um, for me at least, probably uh, no later than the introduction of Nebraska. And I think adding two more since then, and now another two, just takes it further into that territory. I mean, I'd have to go back and, and pour over the history to see if this is true, but my anecdotal sense is we've had more co-championships or tri-championships in the regular season in the last 10 years or so than we used to have. And I think in part that's a function of the unbalanced schedule because teams aren't necessarily playing each other head to head. Right. You know? So if you have two games where you're playing the other heavyweight, well, one of those teams might sweep it and that might be, but if you're only playing once that mitigates the effect, you know, potentially. I think it also comes to the part of the, the fact that there's not a dominant team. Like, you know, if you look at the big 12, you got Kansas and then kind of everybody else and they sort of rotate and right. the competitive, you know, Baylor, Oklahoma, right. in the big 10, they're, like you've said at the opening of the show, I don't know, five or six teams that legitimately have a chance, you think, any you know, year basically of winning the Big Ten or being at the top. Yeah, very it's it's more unusual to have a scenario where there's a team that just clear cut everybody understands. I mean that that has become very, very rare. And even sometimes where we have it, like <laughs> I thought year. there was a good argument for Purdue being that team last year and it didn't work out that way, did it? Yeah. Um, you know, there have been years where I felt like Michigan state was that team and it didn't happen. Uh, there was one year in 2015 where I thought Wisconsin was that team. And in fact, they were that team, uh, getting all the way to the national title game and winning the big 10 of the regular season pretty easily. But that is a rarity. That is definitely the exception. And again, this is, this gets back to what I was saying about UCLA in particular, I think maybe not fully realizing yet, but they're going to find out soon enough that it's a different story than playing in the PAC 12 because the big 10 is a meat grinder. It's, and that's not getting any easier when you add in two teams like this. Cause I, I do think you have to, you have to assume that USC will more often than not be a decent quality team at the very least. Uh, I don't expect them to come in and be a Nebraska. No way. Yeah. Um, they'll be better than that. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to sort out um, how much the regular season title really means anymore because, you know, it's as much these days, it's at least as important that you get a favorable schedule as it is that you've got a dominant team, you know, and we have seen instances, I think the 2016 season, was one where Michigan State was, uh, there's just not a doubt in my mind, they were the best team of the Big Ten that year. They proved it by winning the Big Ten tournament. The eye test, I think, and I have a bias, obviously, but I think pretty clearly they were. But Indiana won the regular season because they had an unbelievably favorable schedule. And we've seen that kind of thing happen. We, now, Michigan, granted, used COVID to kind of <laughs> manipulate their way yeah. into a favorable schedule, but we saw that two years ago, yeah. right? So, yeah, I, I think you, I think your point's valid, but I guess my only caveat to that would be the only thing it does for me is further strengthen the argument that if you're really talking about trying to make an ultimate case for supremacy in the conference, most years, you're probably going to need to win the tournament to make that case and have it be compelling. 
because the the regular season schedule is just too too prone to significant differences that actually impact the standings you know it's a shame you know it's the one thing it's the one thing that i you know getting back to what i was talking about with the thursday saturday turnaround that is you know to to get into the get off my lawn mode um that is one thing that i miss is the true round robin i mean the old big 10 18 game gauntlet where you played everybody home and road that was a proving ground i mean you just there was no argument after that you had a champion and it meant something you know and i'm not saying i want to go back I, I, there's no going back i mean we just too many damn teams if you played around robin you did an entire regular season of just big 10 games now but um but i do miss that there was something special to that there was something there's something special to that last saturday or sunday in march in in the regular season schedule where you know you were as often as not you were determining a, a regular season champion um just by virtue of having played everybody evenly yeah you, you had a true test well for our younger listeners there was a time when there were 10 teams in the big 10 and that's right actually, right <laughs> it's got its where it actually it, it actually made sense yeah i actually it's now I, it's great that it just stays the big 10 even though we could get up to 16 teams i just it's it's almost so ridiculous. It's actually kind of funny. So I can't like the big 10. On it. Well, the one thing, this just occurs to me, the one thing that they could actually quasi legitimately think about doing now is returning to the conference's original name. The conference's original name was not the big 10. That was a nickname. The conference's original name was the Western conference. Oh, so with USC and UCLA, you now almost have a, a legitimate claim to that. There aren't too many schools east of Rutgers, though, I don't believe, unless we're unless there's a school out in Nova Scotia or something. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, again, please be sure you subscribe to the show if you've not already done so. Please visit our website. Sign up for the email list. Uh, we're not going to send you a lot of spam, just things that are going on with the show. Uh, and you can find all that at the final force on the schedule.com or if your fingers are lazy you can go to tffinots.com there you can sign up for the show you can also find ways to support the show you can tell we've made some changes to the show from production quality and standpoint i hope you appreciate those and uh, we'll see you again until then the final force on the schedule go green <laughs>